นโมทัสสะภะคะวะโตอะระหะโตสัมมาสัมพุทธัสสะนโมทัสสะภะคะวะโตอะระหะโตสัมมาสัมพุทธัสสะนโมทัสสะภะคะวะโตอะระหะโตสัมมาสัมพุทธัสสะพุทธังดัมมังสังขังนมัสสัง
And this is a wonderful thing. And the Buddha pointed out how rare and wonderful it was and, and encouraged us, in, in, as I was saying, in many ways, on many occasions, to use it. Because if we don't use it, well, it's a great pity because, I don't know, probably we won't get reborn as a fly, but we, we might get reborn as a snake. I suppose that's possible. Um, certainly get reborn as something very unfortunate. Uh, he did, the Buddha did explain that this human birth is a, is a rare opportunity, a wonderful opportunity, and it is certain that we will die, but it's not certain that we'll have this opportunity again. So it's a skillful uh, use of this opportunity we have, it's a wise use of this opportunity we have, to, to use our thinking capacity, to use our mindfulness, to use the uh, capacities we have to learn. So, so when, we, when we go a certain way and we... We think, well, this is a way of escape from freedom when we, you know, we follow some pursuit and it fails. Well, then the thing is to reflect on that. I think that's what I was talking about last week or the week before, learning from our mistakes. And, uh, and so in this regard, the Buddha, one of the things the Buddha talked about was uh, reflecting on the nature of the, of the senses that we have, how we get fooled by the six senses the sight, sound, smells, tastes, touches, and mental impressions, and, and the six sense organs, the eyes, ears, nose, tongue, body, and mind. And those of you that are not familiar with the Buddha's teaching, the mind is considered an, an organ, a sense organ, just the same as the eye, ears, nose, tongue, and body. And this is a, this is a really a, a very ripe field uh, for investigation, this is, this is an area the Buddha spoke about many times, is to pay attention to what's really going on here and to see what happens, what happens when we, we see something. There's, a, a, there's this, the eye organ here, this flesh eye organ, and then there's an eye object, a sight object, a form, and then there's a sight consciousness that arises, the knowing of that content. And then there's pleasant and unpleasant feelings arising in association with that. And he says, it's contemplate this. You know, what's going on? What is really going on there? And where do we make a problem out of it? Where do we actually make a mistake? Because the Buddha had eyes, ears, nose, tongue, body, and mind, but he had, from the time of his enlightenment on, had no suffering. And so we have eyes, ears, nose, tongue, body, and mind, and see sight, sound, smells, taste, touches, and mental impressions, but we suffer. So what is it that we're doing? Where is it we're doing it? And what, when is it that we're doing this thing in this domain of the six senses that is creating a problem? So he didn't go on about some dogma that we have to believe in, but rather raised up the six senses as a field for investigation, an area where we can, where we can uh, fruitfully look and see what's going on. And one of the um, <clears throat> classic discourses the Buddha gave in this area, many of you will have heard of the, uh, the fire sermon, Adita Parayaya sermon, which, um, or some of you might have heard about it through T.S. Eliot's poems. And, uh, or maybe you've heard about, apparently there's a, I hear there's a, uh, or read that there's a, there's a rock group in North California now called the Fire Sermon. And apparently it's, um, it's Led Zeppelin, Nirvana, and Sabbath all put together. Anyway, that's, that's, that's a false fire sermon. 
the authentic original fire sermon was the Adita Pariyaya Sutta, given by the Lord Buddha about 2,540-something years ago in uh, an area called uh, Gaya Sisa, uh, which is actually Gaya was the name of the river, and Sisa is the head, and so it was the head of a river called Gaya. And it wasn't far from uh, Bodh Gaya, I think, actually. And the situation where the Buddha gave this, this sermon is very interesting. If I could just relate a little bit, for those of you that don't know this sermon or this discourse that the, that the Buddha gave, it was uh, an interesting situation where an example of where the Buddha used the culture of the time, incorporated what he came across, and then spoke to the people through the language that they understood. Uh, the situation was that the Buddha had spent the wasa, the rainy season, like we're doing now, but he was on his own, uh, and it was Isipatani near Banaras, and uh, the monks had all gone off, and, and he was left alone, and then after the wasa, he was inspired to go back to where he had practiced his austerities and experienced his enlightenment in Bodh Gaya. And, and uh, near there was this um, place called Uruvela. And there were these three brothers called the Kasapas, the three Kasapas. And they were very famous. They were very highly respected. They were kind of like the Rajneeshas of the time, you know, kind of really high, very famous with, with many, many disciples and uh, and uh, because they were great ascetics uh, with very sophisticated uh, rituals of fire worship, very, very grand gestures of fire worship, lots of bits and pieces and gadgets that they used, and they, they were matted hair ascetics as well. They were kind of like Rastafarians, except they tied their, their, their dreads up on their head and had these huge, big locks of, of unwashed, matted hair that they, they tied up on top of their heads, and they were... They were famous for, for this. This was their, this was their, their brand. And uh, they, also <laughs> they also wore bark clothes, apparently, these matted hair ascetics. Uh, and they're very famous, and they had many, many disciples. Uh, the three brothers, the three Kasapas, there was Yuruvela Kasapa and uh, Nadi Kasapa and Agaya Kasapa. And each of them, uh, the first one, Yuruvela Kasapa, he had about 500 disciples. And Nadi Kasapa, he had about 300 disciples. And Gaya Kasapa, he had 200 disciples. They had a 1,000 disciples between the three of them. And uh, as I said, they were very, very popular, and they performed these rituals worshipping the fire. Agni. For the Vedic people, the followers of the Vedas at the time, uh, the, the fire was the voice of Agni, the god Agni, uh, in the Vedic tradition. And uh, water being the female principle and fire being the male principle. So these were disciples of Agni and uh, performed all their elaborate rituals. And, and the Buddha, with his wisdom, was able to, with his uh, psychic powers, was able to discern that Yuruvela Kasapa, the eldest one, who was apparently about 100 years old, he, he was ripe, he was ready for enlightenment. Uh, he just had a little way to go. And so, so the Buddha thought, well, you know, he would go and, and, and help him make this last step. So the story goes, as it was related in the scriptures, that he arrived at where they were staying. Uruvela Kasapa was apparently quite impressed with the uh, demeanor of, of this young summoner. I guess uh, he must have been, the Buddha must have been about 37, 36, 37 at the time. And apparently looked really something. And, 
Yuruvela, who was somebody, uh, Yuruvela Kasapa was really somebody, uh, who wasn't taken in by anybody, was actually impressed with, with, uh, this, this Samana Gotama. And, uh, so when, when the Buddha asked for a place to stay, uh, in fact he asked to stay in the house, or the cave, whatever it was, where the sacred fire of these fire worshippers was kept, uh, Uruvela Kasaba, he agreed, he let him stay in there, but he said, I warn you, he said, there's a naga, there's a serpent that stays in there, and he's deadly, and he'll bite you and kill you for sure. For sure. And you shouldn't stay there, but if you insist, you can stay there. And so uh, the Buddha wasn't deterred, he knew what he was getting himself in for, so he just went in there and sat down. And, and it's related that uh, the serpent did appear and uh, started letting forth fire and smoke and sparks and and the Buddha retaliated with his fire and smoke and sparks and there's this tremendous battle went on apparently and and these uh, these uh, fire worshippers outside apparently saw all this going on I thought oh dear well that's the end of him he's lost what a pity he was a good looking young young monk but um, they were wrong because uh, the Buddha conquered this this Naga and in the morning when they expected to find just a, a burnt-out corpse of an of a over-ambitious monk, the Buddha walked out, cool as a cucumber, and with his arms bowed, and there was this nasty snake just sitting in his arms bowl. And, and uh, these uh, fire worshippers, these Cusper brothers, had to admit, actually, the Buddha did have, uh, he was pretty powerful. However, Yuruvela Kasapa, he was an arrogant so-and-so. He was very, you know, really pleased with himself, and uh, in New Zealand, we'd say there's somebody, he had a ticket on himself. I don't know if you have that expression in this country. I guess it comes from the horse races. You know, when you put a ticket on a winning horse, and in New Zealand, if somebody thinks that they're pretty good, you say, oh, he's got a ticket on himself. So I guess Uruvela Kasapa, he really thought he was special. And so he had this thought, and the Buddha knew he had this thought. Uruvela Kasapa had this thought, oh, this, uh, this summoner, he's got some pretty good psychic powers, but he's not an arahant, he's not an enlightened being just like me. And the Buddha could see this, but he said, actually, that's, you know, it's not such a bad fault. You know, he's got a fault there, but it's not so bad. So the Buddha persisted. And uh, as is related in the scriptures, the Buddha persisted for, for quite a long time, performed thousands of miracles, just so that he could try and break the conceit of this Yuruvela Kasapa, this fire-worshipping uh, matted here ascetic. And I don't know how long it took, but it was quite a long while until eventually... The Buddha thought, oh, well, this is just, there's no point, really. Uh, I've you know, tried all these things to inspire him and impress him out of his conceit, but uh, he won't listen to what I or won't be impressed, and so I'll just tell him straight. So I don't know whether it was uh, because the Buddha got fed up with the conceit of this guy and, or whether it was actually also perhaps more likely the case that through this period of time, Yuruvela Kasapa had become... Uh, sort of uh, softened a little bit. Like when you go to see the chiropractor, they don't just crack your bones straight away, they massage you a little bit and kind of tease you a bit this way, that way, and then when, they, when your guard is down, they crack you like that, and, they, and then you feel better afterwards. Well, I think it was sort of like that with, with Yuruvela Kasapa, a very, very conceited fellow, lived a long time with lots of disciples, telling him that he was wonderful. And, and uh, anyway, in this case, the Buddha got to the point where the no more tricks. I'm not going to try and impress him anymore. I'm just going to tell him straight. So he told them. He said, you are not enlightened. You're nothing like an enlightened being, and the practices you're doing are not going to get you enlightened. 
And that was all that was needed. That did it. And uh, he was humbled at that point. And then uh, it's related that he, he, he was able to acknowledge that uh, he knew he wasn't enlightened and the Buddha actually was superior to him. And so he bowed at the Buddha's feet and asked for the going forth to become a disciple of the Buddha. And as was the, uh, the way of the Buddha, that in such situations the Buddha said, well, not yet, you should first go and consult your 500 disciples and see if they're okay about your becoming my student, my disciple. And so he did, and they were all okay. The Buddha had them all cut off their matted hair, their, their dreads, and, and all their fancy paraphernalia, and throw them all in the Narajana River right there, and became disciples of the Buddha. And then uh, I think it was Nadi Kasapa, the, one of the younger brothers, he, he, he heard that his older brother had lost the plot and came along to see him and find out what had gone wrong and what happened. But he was also impressed and converted, and so he joined in, and then also Gaya Kasapa, so the three Kasapa brothers, the fire worshippers, and their disciples all became the disciples of the Buddha. And so it wasn't long after that that uh, the Buddha gave this discourse, the Adita Pariyaya Sutta, or what's classically known now as the Fire Sermon. And they weren't all arahants at this point, and they were probably Sotapanas, although certainly all had great faith in the Buddha's teachings. But then the Buddha gave this discourse, as I said, using their language, using their um, way of thinking, and talking, he was talking about burning. And so this is an example of how we use our minds to engage our experience in a creative, constructive way until we, we come to see for ourselves just where, when, and how it is that we're doing something that creates a suffering. And what's recorded in the scriptures may or may not actually turn us into our hearts on the spot. It did for these thousand disciples. They all, on hearing this discourse, arrived at unshakable realization and became fully enlightened beings. And what the Buddha guided them through was a, a progressive contemplation of how these sense organs that we have are, as he said, all burning. He started off this discourse by saying, everything is burning. What is this everything that is burning? The eye is burning. The eye object is burning. The eye consciousness that knows this process is burning. The pleasure and painful sensations that arise as a result of this process are burning. Burning with what? Burning with greed, burning with aversion, burning with delusion. Ragagina, dosagina, mohagina. Burning with greed, aversion, delusion. And so the contemplation was trying to direct their minds to the point of seeing that so long as greed, aversion, and delusion are distorting our perceptions, then whatever our experience is, we make a problem out of it. So it doesn't matter what we look at or what we hear. Then he went on to the ear the ear objects, the ear consciousness, the smell, the smell objects, the smell consciousness, the taste, the taste object, the taste consciousness, the body sensation, the sense objects, the sense consciousness, and then the mind, and the mind activity, the mind objects, and the, and the mind consciousness. All of this, he said, is burning. Burning with what? Burning with greed, burning with aversion, burning with delusion. In the realization 
that this is the process, if we're able to steady our minds carefully enough, consistently enough, patiently enough, then as was the case in, uh, for these thousand disciples, the mind breaks through the delusion, breaks through the delusion, and what happens is the realization of freedom. And so the encouragement there is to use our thinking process use our thinking process to to contemplate our experience. Many times people will approach meditation or approach Buddhism with the idea that we're supposed to just make the mind blank. It's understandable that we might want to break from thinking too much, but just trying to blank it all out is, is probably not the way. Rather, what's encouraged and what's more useful is to engage our thinking process in ways that are useful. So to think about the experience of seeing. When we see something that we like, what is the experience, what is the nature like? If you haven't seen it, then the mind is peaceful, and then something beautiful comes up, and you see it, and then something happens. Pleasure or pain arises. You know, we don't catch the, the, the stage of seeing seeing conscious arising, arising, but we do then get the next experience, which is the pleasure and pain that arises as a result of seeing. And then we've got a choice at that point. When we, when, if we observe this, if our sati is strong enough, if our concentration is well established enough, then at that point, see, as soon as seeing arises, or as soon as hearing arises, then there's this feeling comes with it. And we see this process, and just by seeing the process... We're able to let go. Yeah. Until we see the process, well, it, it can be just thinking. and So just understanding this theory is not going to do it. Now, many people can read the fire sermon or, or can understand the Buddha's teachings conceptually, very sophisticated understanding, but that doesn't bring about the letting go. Yeah. I remember when I was a, a junior monk in my first year living in Thailand and there was a bit of a fad around at the time of um, people studying the Abhidhamma. And the Abhidhamma is a very sophisticated analysis of, of consciousness and, and uh, you can uh, spend your whole lifetime studying it and still find there's more to learn and more to understand. And, but uh, there was a kind of a, a fashion around of people talking Abhidhamma speak all the time. And, uh, you know, for instance, you, you, know, you comment on something something being beautiful and what somebody would reply back to say, oh, it's just visual object, you know, or some, some agreeable sound and just say, oh, it's just a sound object. It could well be that a, a, a thorough understanding of the Abhidhamma alongside a well-established practice in mindfulness and, and uh, the whole body-mind could help us uh, uh, in the, uh, arriving at the point where we can let go of our attachments, where we can stop doing what we're doing that's creating the suffering in our lives. It could well be that. However, just to have a, a sophisticated understanding of the teachings uh, doesn't do it. So uh, when we have experiences in daily life with the sights, sounds, smells, tastes, touches and mental impressions, instead of just instead of just letting ourselves be impressed by these things, by these objects, rather to engage 
with our thinking, with our minds, skillfully and carefully, so as we can see how they affect us. When Ajahn Chah was staying in uh, London with the young monks that were first there, Ajahn Sumato, Ajahn Nando, Ajahn Viridhamma, and Ajahn Kemadhamma, I think, were all there together in Haverstock Hill and uh, at a house that the English Sangha Trust had owned and invited them to stay. And this was just across the road from a pub on, uh, in Hampstead. And having just spent five or ten years living in the forest in Thailand, uh, this was quite a change. And you'd get quite a bit of noise in the evening, especially on an evening like this. You'd get all the, the, the locals over there in the pub sitting outside having a nice time. And this noise had waft over. And I guess it happened after the meditation one evening, one of the monks complained to Ajahn Shah and just said, oh, it's so difficult to meditate when we've got all this noise here. And uh, Ajahn Chah looked at him with perfect equanimity. Quite clearly, it wasn't a problem for him. He said, where's the suffering? Is the noise annoying you, or are you annoying the noise? Now, our assumption is that the stimulus of the world, the sight, sound, smells, taste, touches, and mental impression, annoy us. But if we can slow the mind down enough, quieten it down enough, until we're there for a moment. And we can see that's not the case. These things are not annoying us. There was an experience of a few years ago when, when we were on retreat here and there was a guest staying who, who kept making a noise with her meditation stool. She was sitting right there, just where, where Rupa is. She wasn't mindful and peaceful like Rupa uh, and uh, didn't sit in that posture, she sat on a stool. But when she changed posture, which was quite often, she would take it and she would drop it on the floor right next to her. I noticed this immediately. We started sitting on the meditation retreat. And it was, it was uh, disturbing me. And I was beginning to regret that would allow her to join us on the retreat. Anyway, there was one day, a few days into the retreat, I remember sitting here and I was facing the shrine and just sitting there quite peacefully, and the mind was quite calm. And then suddenly she did a thing, and just <coughs> dropped it on over there. But this time it was different, because I, at the moment that it happened, there was a recognition that you got a choice. At the, at the moment that that sound impinges on the organ of hearing, you got a choice whether you're going to send energy out to that, whether you're going to leak the heart passion out with aversion. There is that choice. Now, as a philosophy or as an argument, that doesn't necessarily do much for us, but if we see it, well, it's quite humbling, really, because all this carry-on we have about being disturbed by the world, you know, all the things that we think are disturbing us, you know, the ugly sights that you can see on television, you know, or the ugly sounds, or the ugly information, or the ugly memories, the painful memories that we have, something that somebody did to us so many years ago. We think that these things are disturbing us, but the truth is, the reality is, that we've got a choice at that point. 
But so long as the heart is filled with greed, aversion, and delusion, or we're still swayed by greed, aversion, and delusion, there's a question here this evening, by the way, which is, how can we practice with hatred our own and other people's? Well, this is one way of practicing with it, is recognizing that when there's a stimulus, whatever it is, whatever somebody says to us, or whatever object arises in front of us, somebody tells us some bad news, or somebody says something unpleasant to us, we've got a choice in reality whether we're going to allow the heart passion to leak out with a reaction or whether we're going to observe and stay at home or as Ajahn Chah would say, our real home. Stay here and feel the reaction. So this contemplation is there's no judgment on our reactions. You know, we all have these reactions. We all have sights, sounds, smells, tastes, touches and mental impressions. We all have agreeable and disagreeable reactions to these. Beautiful and ugly sights, sounds, smells, tastes, touches and mental impressions. But this is a field of investigation. And if we set it up as a field of investigation, well then, even when we so-called you know, make mistakes and, and do allow the heart energy to leak out with aversion or to leak out with desire, it's the same thing. It's exactly the same thing that if we haven't learned how to contain the senses, sangwara indriya, or restraint of the senses, the six senses being restrained, if we haven't learned how to restrain the senses, then the passions keep flaring, keep firing, keep firing all the time. And you, what happens is we become addicted to it. And the sad reality is that we behave like these flies. It's just hitting the window. Until eventually you see them down right now in, uh, what is it called, Big Market in Newcastle. You know, people sadly doing things that they've been doing for a very long time and getting more and more burnt out. We say, we have that expression, don't we? Getting burnt out. So where does that expression come from? It comes from being burned by our passions. It's not being burned by the world. I mean, you know, a glass of beer doesn't burn us. The passions of delusion burn us. Somebody saying, you are such and such and such, that doesn't burn us, but our anger burns us. A very beautiful object that somebody presents to us, like today, on the, we're down there on the, on the building site and, and Richard and I were milling up some, some offcuts of oak and it's a really nice smell. I don't know if any of you have been doing building work, but the smell of burning oak when we did this floor here, it was a wonderful project. This, we spent weeks, months putting this floor in and there's a, it was a beautiful memory, a beautiful perception just to smell this oak going through the bandsaw again and, and noticing the sensation, the pleasure that arises. Yeah. We, if we're not careful, these pleasurable sensations arise and the passions leak out and we make too much of it. Yeah. We make too much of it. We, we attach at that point. And that's where we're doing what we do to create suffering. Whereas if we direct our mindfulness and our attention in the right way, at the right time, in the right place, then we see this. Now, that doesn't mean to say that we should take a position against the senses. Often people will make this mistake in the time of the Buddha, just as in this time. And the Buddha himself made that mistake. He denied all his senses, living the, the ultimate austerity to the point of giving up food and 
until he nearly died, until he realized that denying the senses is not it. Actually, coming back to the senses is it. But coming back to the senses in an appropriate way, in a mindful way, in a reflective way. And that's, that's personally what I used to reflect on when these Abhidhamma in Thailand used to just say, oh, sight object, sound object. There's nothing wrong with actually a bit of pleasure. And, you know, the Buddha didn't go and stay in the rubbish tip. You read the scriptures. It didn't didn't say, and the Lord was walking until he found the local rubbish tip and then set up his mosquito net and stayed there. No, he went and found beautiful places. He went and stayed in in bamboo groves and in mango groves and avocado groves. Oh, no, that's that's Ajahn uh, Tanisaro, isn't it, in the avocado groves? But the Buddha found nice places with nice streams and places to bathe and a nice cool breeze, like on Vulture's Peak. If you've ever been to India, Vulture's Peak is way up high and there's a nice cool breeze. And you can go down, walk down to the bamboo grove to bathe. And Actually, it's not so beautiful now because they've cut down all the trees, but in those days I'm sure it was very beautiful. Now, beauty has its place. Like, well, the sense of touch... You know, sometimes people take up the spiritual path and, and then they, monastics, monks and nuns can get very hung up about this. And you know, Living the celibate life, you can take a position against sensual pleasure. Touch at the right time in the right way can be uh, very healing. I was just, just a few days ago talking to a physiotherapist. I mean, we were having this discussion about how there's plenty of research around these days which, which clearly indicates that the right kind of touch... Uh, it releases endomorphins, which is the uh, neurochemical which releases pain. Uh, it's, uh, the right kind of touch in the right way in the right time, the right kind of sounds, the right kind of sights. What's, what's, the, what becomes, what's the issue, though, is, is whether there's greed or aversion or delusion involved. It's not the senses. It's not the sense organ. It's not the world that's a problem. Where's the problem? The problem is our relationship with the world. And so, uh, whatever our experience, it is true that the Buddha did speak in praise of simplifying our experiences. Overstimulation of the senses is uh, not very clever. Um, When I was was travelling, I met this guy. This is when I, um, before I was a monk, when I was about maybe 22 years old, and I was travelling through Indonesia, and I met this guy who'd been up in India and Thailand, and I told him that I was thinking about becoming a Buddhist monk, going to join a monastery. He says, oh, no, joining a monastery, that's not, that's a big mistake. He says, well, the Buddha, the Buddha said that uh, the middle way is between the two extremes, but you're only going to find the middle way by experiencing the extremes. And so he was busy going around experiencing all well, the extremes, and you could tell he'd experienced quite a lot. <laughs> you could literally, he was, he was burnt. But he was still looking for some more extremes. Now, that's not what the Buddha taught. The Buddha did try the extremes, but he said they go nowhere. And they were useful anyway. But there is this middle way, and what he recommended was not going too far to the extremes. Not going too far, but rather living a modest life. Or as Ajahn Chah used to put it, knowing what's the right amount with things, the right amount of pleasure, the right amount of pain. Somebody came to see me a few days ago and they were talking about how they found, they'd been on a meditation retreat and they found all the hours that they were 
made to sit meditation was just far too much for them, and they were in excruciating pain. And so now their perception of meditation was was just one of pain. I said, why, well, you know, I said, you don't have to do that. That's, you sure? He said, he said, he said, I said, no. He said, well, the teacher told me that the Buddha, you know, he sat under the Bodhi tree and determined until his bones break and his blood dries up and his hair falls out and whatever else falls off, I don't know, and you've got to do the same thing. And I, I said, well, I wouldn't want to disparage that teacher, but but maybe you're not quite like the Buddha. <laughs> You know, the Buddha took a long time. I don't know how many lifetimes it took the Buddha to get to that point where he was ready to endure that pain. You know, so several of you I know are yoga teachers and, and you know that you, you have to pace yourself. You don't want to force things too much. And so knowing the right amount of pain, knowing the right amount of pleasure takes mindfulness. Yeah. And so if we exercise this mindfulness around pleasure and pain with regards to the sight, sound, smells, taste, touches and mental impressions in our experience of life, well then these are the things that teach us. The sense organs or the sense objects are not enemies. Mm-hmm. People, can, people can present the spiritual path as if somehow the sense objects or the sense organs are themselves uh, the problem. Uh, well, they can investigate that if they want, but from the Buddhist perspective, what he encouraged us to investigate was our relationship to the sense organs and the sense objects, to see where greed, aversion and delusion comes in and we get burnt in the process. And when we see that, well, then we experience the benefit as those thousand disciples of the Cusper brothers realize for themselves the experience of letting go. This is not something we have to wait until we go on a meditation retreat to practice. We can... Use this in everyday life. And the, the relationships that we have, the conversations we have, whether with people, whether we're on our own. Yeah. Like right here now, our neighbours have got a sewerage problem. I don't know if you noticed it. Yeah. They thought we had a sewerage problem. Well, they've got a much worse sewerage problem. I mean, it's serious. And the, this hot weather, you know, what my, I've told you about my olfactory consciousness. It's, uh, it's very well developed, I think. My lizard brain is probably one of the best parts of my anatomy and uh, I really struggle with smells. And it seems to be getting worse as the years go by. In my other faculties, my, my teeth, they've all gone. You know, I've got plastic teeth and I've got two hearing aids and, and they're going to replace my knee joints for me. And <laughs> but my sense of smell is uh, improving, if that's the right word for it. It's getting more acute. And so this is a great field for practice. Whatever we come across, you know, to use, use our mind and to use technology, you know, not to be afraid of technology. To use technology wisely. I don't know, there's, that new, there's a new um, piece of new gadget out these days which is um, supposed to help people avoid suffering. You know, you might have heard about, I have, I've not exactly heard about it myself, but I've heard it reported that when people get drunk, they make silly phone calls on their mobile phones. I don't know if you'll send silly text messages and get into all sorts of trouble. Apparently this is quite common. Well, now so one telephone company has invented a phone that you blow into first, and it says, you are too drunk to make this call. <laughs> or, it can, or it might say, you are too drunk to drive home. Get a taxi. Yeah. Well, I think they should invent technology whereby you can... You can press the number and your temperature, if you're too hot, it says 
you are too deluded to make this phone call, or you are too greedy to go shopping. We could use technology to do these things. Whatever it is, all of our experiences are basically fuel for our contemplation. We don't have to wait until we're going to stay in a monastery or go on a meditation retreat. The sights, sounds, smells, tastes, touches and mental impressions are our teachers. These are our six ajans. So thank you very much this evening for your attention. Yang namakata satu karang gada masih